You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. Coming up today, former US President Donald Trump calls for the termination of the Constitution. But what might that mean for his new presidential bid? Also ahead, Monocle's correspondent in Colombia, Anastasia Maloney, has the latest on promising signs for the country's peace talks. Then we'll find out why the leader of the UK's Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, wants to scrap the House of Lords should he become Prime Minister. I don't think anybody can defend the House of Lords. It's one of the recommendations, as you know, in today's report. What I want to do to make sure that the talking bit, which is how do we now implement this, carries on now. But by the time we get to the election, we can get to the delivery. And a little later on today's programme, Finland's new culture ambassador, Paula Parviainen, tells us about her priorities. Food, education, digitalization, the care for the elderly, all of these were topics that were, were all the time on the agenda. All that and more besides ahead on The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. The US President Joe Biden has criticised his predecessor, Donald Trump, for calling for the termination of the country's constitution. Trump made the comments on his Truth Social account over the weekend and repeated his false claims that he won the 2020 presidential election. Well, let's unpack this further now with Thomas Gift, an associate professor of political science and director of the Centre on US Politics at UCL. Um, Thomas, good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. What exactly has Donald Trump been saying? Well, as you suggested, Donald Trump has said that uh, he wants the Constitution terminated, which is a quite a remarkable statement in and of itself. Uh, but in effect, uh, asking Americans to terminate the Constitution isn't particularly new for Trump. Uh, that was essentially what he was asking Congress to do by overturning the 2020 election, uh, backdating to January 6th and before. So you could argue that Trump is sounding more and more unhinged because he's now he's saying the quiet parts out loud. And that may be true. But Trump has never had a filter. He shoots from the hip, and that's historically been his central appeal to his base. Um, And so I think that this is kind of more of the same. Yeah, it probably is. Um, He continues to be highly problematic, doesn't he, for the GOP more broadly. And in particular, I'm interested to get your take, Thomas, on this idea that given he's so directly uh, challenging some of the conventions of US politics, that he becomes ever more difficult, particularly for constitutional conservatives, for sort of literalists, for the real right-leaning parts of the GOP, because he's challenging something that's so fundamental to their their very uh, beliefs. When he comes out with these sorts of claims and this kind of rhetoric, how does that wing of the GOP respond? That's a really great question. And you could talk about that wing as kind of the establishment of the Republican Party. But, you know, more and more, uh, Trump is the establishment. And those who support him, uh, I think, could reasonably take that moniker. I think uh, a lot of the sort of more serious conservatives, as I would describe them, have already been kind of critical uh, of Donald Trump. In lots of respects, I think we can kind of think about the Republican Party as being split into three different parts, the the always Trumpers, the never Trumpers, and the sometimes Trump. And I think you could argue that that latter group, which maybe would uh, encompass some of the individuals that you're describing, those sometimes Trumpers, they they will find 
this language offensive or inappropriate. But the reality is that this isn't telling them any more about Trump than they you know, didn't already know. And so to clearly move away from Trump, which I think they're open to, um, at least in private, if they're not willing to say so in pub- public, it's going to require that there's a viable alternative out there who also speaks their language. And I think to this point, they're not so sure if that a viable alternative is out there. Uh, well, yeah, and at the risk of then asking you a follow-up that you, in a sense, have already asked, uh, Thomas, how, what does that look like? Trump remains the, the front-runner. Is there anyone who could throw uh, their hat into the ring? We know, of course, about uh, another one of these big characters, right-leaning, out of Florida, who's sort of made some good moves. But I mean, I don't know. Is there anyone out there that could even potentially galvanize some of those uh, undecideds on the right of the U.S. spectrum? Well, I think who you're alluding to is Ron DeSantis, who is the Florida governor. Uh, he, of course, had a really big win um, on a night when Republicans nationally uh, largely underperformed. And I think you do have to look at him as kind of the clear front runner. Right now, polls are suggesting that they are more and more uh, neck and neck. And I think he speaks to uh, a certain element of the Trumpian base because of his Trumpian impulses. He's a fighter. He doesn't back down. He likes to own the libs, so to speak. Um, He really leans into the culture wars very much in the way that Donald Trump has. Uh, But he doesn't come with all of this baggage. And so for Republicans who kind of like the general strain of Trumpism, but can't get four square behind this kind of manic and unhinged rhetoric, I think he's got to be their guy. I mean, there are still some other possibilities, including uh, Mike Pence, including Mike Pompeo. Um, But, you know, I, I think at this point, you really have to look at Ron DeSantis as the most viable challenger to Donald. Well, Thomas, just on that point, and this could be because I'm sat in London, maybe, or maybe it betrays my my own my own political leanings. Is there something that's maybe even a little more scary about DeSantis than there is about Trump? One thing that concerns me as a sort of an outsider looking in is that he seems to have some kind of ideology. What in a sense reassures about Trump is that he's so his 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 brain, his his politics is so fractured. Um it's it's almost less scary because it's so incoherent. And something about DeSantis, he's so focused, he has some points of principle which I find a little almost scarier. Can you offer me any reassurances that there's nothing to, or, or there's less to fear from DeSantis? I'm not sure I can reassure you. Um, DeSantis is a smart guy. Uh, I, I think he is very astute politically. I mean, he has two Ivy League degrees. Um, he didn't get to where he was uh, for, for no reason. I mean, I guess I would say that uh, my own belief at this point is that he's more of a you know, traditional Republican. I just don't think that he has the kind of manic and unhinged impulses that Donald Trump has. I just couldn't imagine, for example, him being in the situation uh, that Trump was in 2020 and challenging the the basic integrity of the election. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I think it, it depends on your perspective, certainly. Um, some people have described him as kind of Trump light, and I, I know some are probably more critical and think that he's a, a greater threat. But I think he's more in the mold of, if not kind of the traditional Republican uh, establishment of George W. Bush or Mitt Romney, um, he's probably somewhere in between those and where Donald Trump is. Yeah, re- reassuringly politically pragmatic, perhaps, at least. Yeah. Uh, that's a conversation, Thomas, we can pick up a- another day. I did want to ask you a little bit about, uh, we talked back to, of course, the the, the midterms, Georgia's Senate runoff uh, getting underway. Well, what do you make of this? So it's obviously, it continues a sort of fascinating narrative that emerged from those uh, ballots. Um, what should we be looking out for? 
Right. I mean, it's somewhat anticlimactic at this point because who controls the Senate and who controls the House is already determined. So um, for a while there, it looked like maybe this could uh, dictate who ended up um, holding the, the Senate. But still, it's a really interesting race. And I think to my mind, the most interesting element about it is that Herschel Walker, who is kind of a scandal plagued candidate, very gaff prone, um, really has no qualifications to my mind, not much policy expertise, uh, no clear uh, message. The fact that he is within striking distance of a U.S. Senate seat, um, that's kind of remarkable in and of itself. And I think in large part, this just reflects that, you know, in Georgia and across the country writ large, um, it's really just Democrat, Republican. It's not who the candidates actually are. So right now it looks like Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, um, has a, a slim lead according to the polls, but it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we'll keep a close eye upon it. Um, let's check in uh, a little later, Thomas, and get more of a view from you on it. But thanks for right. now uh, for making sense of an always uh, compelling narrative. On the other side of the pond, that was Thomas Gift from University College London. Now uh, let's cross and hear from Monocle's Marcus Hippie. He's standing by with today's other news headlines. Thanks, Tom. A $60 price cap on Russian seaborne oil has come into force as the world's richest nations attempt to limit Moscow's ability to finance its war in Ukraine. Russia has said it will not abide by the measure, while Ukraine has said the cap will have little impact. New Zealand's government has said it will introduce a law that will require big tech companies like Google and Meta to pay for the local news content that appears on their feeds. The new bill is expected to be modelled on laws in Australia and Canada. And three Chinese astronauts have returned to Earth after completing a six-month mission on China's space station. The crew have been working on the final construction stage of the station. They safely touched down in a Chinese region of Mongolia yesterday. Those are the day's headlines. Now back to Tom. Thank you very much indeed, Marcus. We head to Colombia now, where the country's government says it's making steady progress in peace talks with the feared ELN rebel group. Monocle's correspondent, Anastasia Maloney, has been keeping a close eye on this for us, and she joins us now on the line from Bogota. Um, What can you tell us about uh, progress in these talks, Anastasia? So the um, Colombian president announced over the weekend that the first point of agreement between the ELN rebels and the government had been made. um, And the talks have been going on for about two weeks now in the Venezuelan capital, Caracas. And the first point of agreement is that the two sides have agreed to allow an indigenous group uh, known as the Emberas to return safely back um, to their territory, their rainforest reserves in Western Colombia. Um, the Emberas are indigenous community that have been caught up a lot in the fighting between the ELN rebel soldiers and government forces. And about three years ago, they were forced away from their reserves. And many of them, hundreds of them, ended up in the capital, Bogota, where they'd been sleeping rough, sleeping in camps, makeshift tents um, in the city's parks. And so this agreement is um, a sign that the two sides are able to agree on something um, and that they said that both of them are going to ensure that the indigenous communities living in Bogota can return back safely 
to their reserves in Western Colombia. So it's a sign that the talks are going the right direction. Well, yeah. And can you give us a sense of how this has been achieved? Because it's it seemed at various points over the last few years that this has been somewhat uh, unlikely because of uh, various entrenched positions. Is it, is it particularly significant to look at the role of President Gustavo Petro in this in terms of really being able to to move the dial on these discussions? Yes. I mean, I think the fact that he was elected as Colombia's first left-wing president, he is a former rebel member himself. Um, I think that's been absolutely crucial to get the two sides talking again. This is not the first time the ELN and the Colombian government have tried to negotiate some sort of peace deal. The last time was in 2019. And the fact that he was uh, elected as president, um, I think, is the real reason and the only reason why they have restarted um, these negotiations. And what we've been hearing from the ELN uh, commanders um, is that they uh, decided to restart the negotiation precisely because there is some sort of established trust between the two sides. Um, as I've just said, Petro was uh, a rebel, a member of a rebel group uh, during his youth. Um, he understands uh, guerrilla groups, uh, being a member, him, being a former member himself. There is that implicit trust between the two sides. And I think that's why we're seeing these uh, talks restart now and the first point of agreement already reached within sort of two weeks. Yeah, definite encouragement. And and I wonder, we also have sort of various co-sponsors of the process. Venezuela, as you've mentioned, Cuba, Norway ha- have agreed also to, to, to be involved. Does that help to um, mitigate against some of the more troubling aspects? I guess there are still observers without saying, look, you know, the ELN it has a, lot, a big membership. You know, it continues to derive support and financing through various ill-gotten activities, whether that's moving drugs or illegal mining, this sort of thing. One could imagine those would be stumbling blocks, but it does seem there's this wider bind. Is that partly because there are these other stakeholders also supporting in the background? Um, I think we'll, we'll see the role of the other stakeholders like uh, Norway and Cuba. Um, I think that they're... Um, what they can contribute, we haven't seen that yet because the talks are still the early stages. I think that the real stumbling block and the big issue here is the question of the ceasefire. And it's important to note that this first point of agreement that has been reached does not include uh, a ceasefire um, of any kind. So I think when the ceasefire, if there is one and they agree to one, I think the countries uh, like Norway and like Cuba will be important in the sense that they will play some sort of role in monitoring that ceasefire and reporting back to, to say whether actually it's being uh, implemented or not. I think then we'll see uh, to what extent those other countries will play an important role. But at, at the moment, it, it's too early to say um, whether they will be uh, pivotal in breaching some sort of peace deal because it's still too early on in the in the peace talks. Well, yeah, and, and with that very obvious and reasonable caveat, Anastasia, let me just ask you a bit about a potential final settlement. Obviously, we now have details from, if we go back to what was it, 2016, the big uh, agreement with the FARC, of course, these kinds of small uh, um, developments that we're seeing. Do we have any sense of what a meaningful truce, a proper final settlement could one day look like as we inch along and with those caveats you've provided? Do we do we start to see a potential pathway to that kind of settlement? Um, I don't I don't think so at the moment. Um, The pathway has been set, as you've just mentioned, um, in 2000 and 
16 when the uh, FARC, which is the, the, the big guerrilla group, they had reached an agreement, a peace deal. Um, we know that, that that peace deal took years to negotiate and to be agreed upon. And the big issues, apart from the ceasefire in the, in, in the future, will be, um, you know, how much the ELN will admit and recognise um, its uh, part in drug trafficking. Will it give up those drug trafficking routes? Um, will it uh, stop illegal gold mining activities? And also there's this issue of um, who controls uh, Colombia's raw materials like oil and coal. The ELN have always said that that's got to be controlled by the Colombian government and it shouldn't be controlled by foreign um, oil companies. So um, there's still so many um, issues to sort out. Um, but the pathway, as far as the experience of uh, negotiating and having a peace deal between a big um, rebel group that's been active for you know more than 50 years has been done. So there is an example and the pathway in that sense. But the ELN is is quite different in, from the FARC. They they're considered to be a bit more uh, militant um, in their ideology. So um, it's we'll have to see what happens. But it, they've got the best chance ever with Gustavo Petro, the new president of Colombia. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. Anastasia, thanks for uh, making sense of it for us. As always, that was Anastasia Maloney in Bogota. Thanks for being on The Briefing here on Monocle 24. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders and so on and so forth, across the board, is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24. The leader of the UK's opposition Labour Party, Sir Keir Starmer, has said that he wants to abolish the country's upper chamber should he be elected as Prime Minister. Well, let's get more on this now with the FT's political editor, George Parker, who joins us on the line now. Good afternoon to you, George. What exactly has uh, Keir Starmer had to say? Well, basically what uh, Keir Starmer was doing was um, giving people a, a rare sight of a, of a big policy agenda for, for a Labour government. There's a constant criticism of Keir Starmer. He, he's against lots of things, but people don't, don't really know what he's for. So he's been launching this morning a, a report by Gordon Brown, the former Labour Prime Minister, into shaking up the way that Britain's run, essentially. And some of these ideas will find their way into uh, the next Labour manifesto, although not all of them. And top of the agenda, as you mentioned there, is, um, is, is the House of Lords, so abolishing the indefensible House of Lords, the unelected upper chamber, which will be replaced with a smaller, more representative assembly, drawn from the nations and regions of the UK. Um, there'd be a sort of attempt to clean up Westminster, stopping MPs having second jobs, having a new anti-corruption commissioner, and basically devolving a lot of power out of Westminster to local mayors and local councils, which Keir Starmer sees as a way of boosting the country's poor economic growth rate. 
Uh, well, George, it's not the first time that any uh, opposition has mooted uh, some quite significant changes to the, the operations of, of Westminster and indeed more, more widely the, the British sort of establishment. But how radical is this given the context of Labour's current uh, polling and its chances of, of getting in? Does that make, does this, does that mean that this is a radical policy that's more intriguing and more compelling because it may be closer to coming to fruition? Yeah, I mean, I think people are much more interested now what Labour has to say because it's looking increasingly likely that they will be in government in in under two years' time. Um, we expect there has to be an election by the end of 2024, early 2025. So um, the opinion polls give Labour typically a 20-point poll lead, and that means inevitably there's a lot more scrutiny of what Labour would do were they to win that election, and it's not in the bag by any means. Um, and the kind of things that they've been talking about today are... It, it's interesting because we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, inflation, unemployment starting to rise, public services are in disarray, a wave of strikes. Some people would say this is a bit of a sideshow, really. Constitutional reform does, is not something which generally gets the nation's pulse racing. But Keir Starmer clearly thinks that you know, getting the wiring of the system right is an important way of actually getting the economy growing and, and getting things moving if and when uh, Labour win the next election. Well, yeah, and I thought it was instructive to look at what Gordon Brown had to say, because he specifically cited the Brexit vote in 2016, saying people voted for that because it was the only way they could see meaningful change. He wound the clock back even further and said in 2014, many Scots only voted for independence for the same reasons. And his idea, and I don't know what kind of traction people are saying this will get, is that this is a way to sort of change Britain without having to break up Britain or force the uh, the, uh, the other nations that, that form the United Kingdom to, to be even more radical and, and break down the, the union. Do you think that there's any mileage in, in, in Brown's logic here? I think there is. I think um, there's something that Keir Starmer's been saying as well, that the, the two, those two referendums you mentioned, the Scottish independence referendum and the Brexit vote in 2016, were amongst other things, people voting because they thought power was being exercised too far away from them, either in Westminster in the case of the Scottish one or in Brussels in the case of the Brexit referendum. And so by giving more power back to the regions and the nations of the UK, they see that as a way of addressing that conundrum. Giving Scotland, for example, power to negotiate international agreements, to borrow more, give a bit more power to the Scottish Parliament, it's all seen as part of an attempt to hold the United Kingdom together. Um, now, Georgia, it was also telling that Labour says it's going to consult on all of the proposals, as always, before deciding whether to put them in its manifesto. And yet, as you've alluded to already, Starmer's been pretty explicit about his belief that there's a point of principle that governs certainly the sort of anti-democratic nature of, of hereditary peers. Is it? Can we assume that this 100% appears in Labour's manifesto? No, I don't think we can assume that at all, actually. I think the problem with House of Lords reform, although most people would agree the House of Lords is indefensible, reforming it is a huge task. It requires a lot of parliamentary time. The House of Lords will always resist reforming itself. That can cause a logjam, and you're trying to get other much more important legislation through the Houses of Parliament. And David Cameron, as the head of the coalition government, tried to reform the House of Lords in 2012, with the help of the Liberal Democrats, who were very enthusiastic about it, but in the end they were forced to abandon it. And you know, if you look at the House of Lords, you know, repeat attempts over 100 years have been made, and you've still got a situation where about 80 members of the House of Lords are hereditary, hereditary peers, people who owe their position there, purely to the fact that they're the relative of some illegitimate offspring of Charles II 400 years ago. It's an incredible situation. Uh, George, uh, thanks for making some sense of that for us. Uh, always good to hear from you. That was the FT's George Parker in Westminster. You're listening to The Briefing here on Monocle 24. 
Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Last month, Finland's Ministry for Foreign Affairs devised a new role to promote Finnish culture around the world. The first ever position of Ambassador for Culture and Creative Industries was awarded to Paula Parviainen, former ambassador to Singapore. She joined Monocle's Tom Webb here at Midori House in London to explain Finland's global cultural appeal, why the country's the home of Christmas, and what's on the agenda for 2023. Food, education, digitalization, the care for the elderly, all of these were topics that were, were all the time like on the agenda. And we try to find new markets, especially the Finnish food industry is also internationalizing very fast now. And we have a lot of sort of health-based food. And then, of course, like nature, which is a big inspiration for both our arts, but also for our foodstuffs. Finland is a very pure country, you know, like the pure nature. So you can buy food products that are developed from the pure forest or the berries, the, the lakes, all of these, the mushrooms, the fish. So it's all something that has, and the alcohol drinks as well. So, so they, they are finding new markets, interesting markets. So looking at these kind of smallish Finnish brands, what, what does it take to get the message across to an international stage? You mentioned purity, for example. How does Finland prove itself to be much more than Marimekko, Etela, Moomins and Santa Claus? Mm. Yeah, well, Finland is known for those big brands. But we would like to sort of bring in the also the new forms because this has all laid the basis, you know, like Sibelius for the music, Alvaro Aalto, Eliel Saarinen, Eero Saarinen for architecture, design, Marimekko, all of these. But there is so much more to that. And they have, of course, served as inspiration to Finnish artists and to Finnish creative producers, uh, designers and all of that. And this is what in my role I want to also to give tools for our embassies to tell the story about the modern Finland, you know, like how we have developed from this basis that we have and how we are also like very digitalized nowadays. So that also gives us the scaling opportunity. So we can do a lot of like in the gaming industry, it's very, you know, there's no borders to that. And that goes for many other forms as well. So we would like to show that we are much more. We have a good basis for that. We have a good education and we want to support the creative industries and the arts. So we're now in the Christmas period. A lot of people will be buying some of these Finnish brands. Can you paint a picture of Christmas in Finland beyond the stereotypes? What people don't know about Christmas in Finland who haven't been there before? Well, luckily, a lot of British people come to Finland. And it was really, it's a Christmas destination also for many Asians. And Lapland is really magical land for Christmas. You know, the white Christmas is guaranteed. And that's the home of the Santa Claus, the one and only Santa Claus in the world is in Rovaniemi. These are cliches, but they are something that there are so many people who haven't yet seen it for real. And uh, the Aurora Borealis. So, of course, like all of these are, are more the, the known side. But for every Finnish family, you know, uh, the sauna 
is part of their Christmas Eve or the night before Christmas and giving presents. There are some traditional foods. I wouldn't start exporting those foods because they come from our history, like when we were a poor rural country, but they are important for us. And then, of course, like the, you know, seeing your family and, and, uh, and being close to your loved ones. So I think that's a universal value and very dear to us as well. Well, I have to mention the sauna because Monocle's Andrew Muller was there in the Finnish embassy interviewing the ambassador to the UK in the embassy's own sauna. Have you seen it? Have you used it? We just came from there. <laughs> Not that we would have taken the real sauna now, like the with the heated sauna, but it's a nice, it's a very original Finnish sauna. You know, it's like a family sauna. It's not like one that you have in the big sort of representational places. It's, it's sort of, a, it gives you a very sort of real authentic feeling of being in Finland. And you know it's authentic because it's an approved Finnish sauna, is that right? Yes, yes. And when you go there, you get a sauna diploma. And you can really, and then you have the Finnish produce, you know, like we have a lot of, like I said, the nature is a big inspiration also for our cosmetics industry. So now there's a lot of these ecological marks that also have like uh, using our berries and, and using our our sort of forest products. So you can really like get a glimpse of that. But then please make another trip to Finland and try a smoke sauna, which is the original way of doing a sauna, you know, like the, it's a black and it smells smoke, and then a dip in the ocean in the winter. Uh, that's a real, that's mm. a real experience. So at the end of the year, we're going into 2023. What should people around the world keep an eye out for in the future coming out of Finland? Well, we certainly hope that there will be peace in our part of the world. So this is our big wish for next for next year. And then, you know, like we need we need uh, the more open world again. Of course, like the sustainability is one of the big values for us, the green. So like you probably be more sustainable in your travel planning and you choose your destinations, not for quick trips, but for real experiences that gives you something for your own well-being. And But next year we'll have a lot of interesting events in Finland. We have the Helsinki Biennale, which is opening on an island in the middle of the Helsinki city in June. And we have the festivals like we have. The Finland is really, we have an abundance of music festivals for, of everything. We have a kissing festival. We have like every every possible form of festival. And, and those are really something that we would like to see more foreign tourism as well. And to try the authentic sauna, to try a forest experience and to see what Finland can really offer. That was Monocle's Tom Webb in conversation with Paula Parviainen, Finland's ambassador for culture and creative industries. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Briefing here in London. The programme was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Callum McLean. The briefing is back at the same time tomorrow, 1300 in Zurich, midday here in London. That's 7am in Washington, D.C. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye for now and thank you for listening.